Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life's 100th episode. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I'm thrilled to hit this milestone, and I would not be here without you, my loving and loyal listeners. I was thinking about what to share to celebrate 100 episodes, and I decided I wanted this episode to serve as a thank you note from me to you. So I figured our 100th episode would be essentially for you, by you. And when I say by you, I mean I wanted to share more of what you like best. First off, we'll look at my top three Instagram posts, the ones that have most resonated with my community. Then we'll answer a few listeners' questions because, according to the numbers, you guys really enjoy the Q&A episodes. And finally, I'll share the 100th episode celebration giveaway we're rolling out today. Love and Life's 100th episode up next. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my Love Smarter, Not Harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson April and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. So when I checked out your favorite Instagram posts, here's what they were. The first one was a picture of Dan and me at our wedding with a quote that reads, Dating can be exhausting, but hang in there. It only takes one to be the one. And I actually just recently talked about this in episode 97, Heartbreak is Hideous, Here's Help. Because I talked about the philosophies of dating That when we've been on the scene for so long and experienced so many heartbreaks, it's so easy to think, I can't get it right with any of these men. And then I would realize, wait a minute, I don't want to get it right with any of these men because they're not the right man for me. I just need to get it right with the one guy who is my guy. But like I said, when we've been out there and we've been on the scene and we are weary and we are demoralized, we almost get this notion that like it's, it's me and dating and I can't get it together. It's me and men and I can't figure it out with men. No, not men collectively. (laughs) You just need to get it right with that one man. The whole notion of it just takes one to be the one. And for some reason, when I was really, really tired and really, really struggling, that thought helped ease the pain. That thought helped me remain hopeful in the midst of date after date after date and heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And according to Instagram statistics, many of you resonated with that notion as well. And I'm guessing that many of you were like me or are like me, and it feels so overwhelming. So to remember that despite the daunting process of dating, it really is just about staying with it, having the tenacity to not settle, to not give up, and to keep looking for your perfect match. Not a perfect person, but the perfect person for you. This powerful mindset shift moves it from all the dating and all the men to just finding the one who resonates with your soul, who sees, honors, and cherishes what Ken Page, author of Deeper Dating, and who joined me for the podcast in episode 63, what Ken calls your core gifts. And isn't that what we all want? We just want someone who gets us. I know I felt that and I know I hear that from others in my community. We just want to be understood and appreciated for the unique person that we are, that we've worked hard to become. And also when you find that person, I can assure you that things that you thought would be challenges, hurdles you thought you'd have to get over, mountains you thought you'd have to scale, when you're with the right person, many of these concerns are minimized because the fit is just so good. You see eye to eye, you see each other's core gifts, you value and cherish each other's core gifts, and that in and of itself is so powerful that life's challenges and hurdles 
are much more manageable. I talk about this in episode 27. Relationships shouldn't be all that hard. And they were really hard for me when I was with the wrong person. And I think, sadly, many people scream and cry about how difficult relationships are, but it's because they're with the wrong person in the first place. And this kind of segues into the third most popular Instagram post. And it was a quote that said, Singles may feel lonely occasionally. But there's no greater loneliness than feeling alone in marriage. And the origin of this quote was an experience I had in my late 20s, and I share it in my book. So I'll read just a couple paragraphs from my book. Sometimes it takes just one conversation to change your entire perspective. When I was 29, I took a spring break trip to California with two friends, Stephanie and Anna. We drove up and down exquisite Highway 1, taking in Monterey, Carmel-by-the-Sea, Cambria, San Simeon, San Francisco, and Napa. Enjoying stunning ocean views, dramatic cliffs, and adorable sea lions made this one of the most fantastic vacations I'd ever been on. And we all traveled well together, which was especially cool since i just met Anna through Stephanie. I'll never forget one night in our hotel in Napa. Stephanie and I fell into a gripe fest about being single. We harped on pretty much every topic. The pressure to find someone, the scarcity of decent guys, the hopelessness we felt, and the alienation of living solo in a couple's world. When would love come our way? We were tired of going it alone. Anna remained quiet throughout our rant. Since I was just getting to know her, I wasn't sure what to make of her silence. She'd gotten married right after college and therefore hadn't spent many adult years alone. Maybe she didn't feel she had much to say on the subject. Maybe she felt sorry for us. Or maybe the whole conversation bored her. I had no idea. When Steph and I finally paused, Anna said quietly, You know, there's no more painful loneliness than being alone when you're with someone. That stopped us dead in our tracks. Anna continued. I know you guys are lonely sometimes, but I'm telling you, it's way worse to feel alone in a marriage. At least you have the chance of eventually marrying the love of your life and experiencing intimacy and a deep connection. I married Joe thinking I'd found that, but I was wrong. And now it's too late. And I'm really really lonely all the time. Throughout my 30s and early 40s, whenever I got down, I would think back to Anna's words and remember that I was way better off being single and occasionally lonely than to be stuck in a bad marriage feeling utterly alone. So as I shared in the book, sometimes one conversation changes your perspective in a powerful and profound way which is why I shared it in the book and then also on Instagram because I thought, gosh, this made such a difference for me. It helped me, it helped ease my loneliness because I knew that despite feeling alone sometimes when I was single, it wasn't the depth of loneliness that I would feel if I married the wrong person and then felt utterly alone with someone with whom I'm supposed to feel this deep and profound connection. And one final thought on this. I heard a quote once when I was single, which I also liked, and it goes like this. Loneliness is voluntary and temporary. I'm pretty sure I heard that from Dr. Laura Schlesinger. I love the focus on voluntary and temporary. Both are true and both are important to highlight in the midst of a lonely moment or lonely season because It's voluntary. You could absolutely find someone to fill this void. I wouldn't recommend it. I almost did it when I almost married the wrong person. But loneliness is a choice that we choose because we are elevating our heights. We are keeping our standards high. We are looking for extraordinary and believing it is going to be ours. Maybe not in this moment, but at some point. So the loneliness we choose because it's preferable than settling. It's preferable than phoning it in with the wrong person and then feeling a depth of loneliness that 
loneliness as a single person, as Anna was saying, doesn't compare to. We don't want to feel that depth. So we choose loneliness now, believing for an extraordinary connection to come. And the choice is key because research in psychology shows that when we recognize that we have a choice, that we have personal agency, is what researchers call it, we are happier. We all hate being backed into a corner where we feel we have no options. So for us to highlight the fact that even in loneliness, we are choosing it because we are believing and hoping for something better to come, that's powerful in and of itself. And then, of course, to remember that like any season in life, and that's actually that that word season is a powerful one that I used to think of when I was single. Because when we're in something, it can feel like it's always been like this and it's always going to be like this and I'm stuck in it forever. But the metaphor of a season is very powerful. And at least it was for me because it reminded me that, okay, this is happening now. But just like there are four seasons in the year, it's here for a time. It's temporary. And then it will move into the next. And of course, there's so many podcast episodes in which I talk about our single years and how important they can be for developing us as individuals, which then only makes us better partners when we meet our person. So I hope that this notion of loneliness and comparing the loneliness that you may feel from time to time as you are flying solo in this season, I hope that that, comparing that loneliness to what's so much worse, feeling alone in your partnership, I hope that comparing that And thinking about that can be empowering for you. And also, of course, recognizing that it is a choice that you're making, choosing your life, accepting only the best in love and life. I hope those mindset shifts can be helpful. And now for the second most popular post. It's a chart depicting the power of our beliefs. And I loved that my community resonated with this post. Because of course, sharing the power of our beliefs and the impact of our thoughts on our emotions is one of the main reasons I do what I do. It's why the motto of this podcast is take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. We talk about it every week. And when I fully internalize the utter power of my own beliefs, I moved from being someone who felt trapped by my emotions oftentimes, who did have bouts of depression, to being someone who's happy pretty much most of the time. I have the normal fluctuations of emotions that are just part of life. And you know my heart on this topic. It's something I'm very concerned with that we look at a sad emotion and go, I'm clinically depressed. Or we feel nervous to go to a party and we go, oh my gosh, I have social anxiety, which I talk about if you do have social anxiety. Episode 57 with author and psychologist Ellen Hendrickson, Take Charge of Social Anxiety Techniques from Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And I have other episodes for you if you suffer from just general anxiety or depression. Episode 65, Liberate Your Mind to Address Depression and Anxiety. It's an interview with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who's the founder of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I talk about ACT again with psychotherapist Kate Lambie in episode 77, Take Charge of Your Negative Thoughts, Part 1, Techniques from ACT. And again, I focus on ACT and cognitive behavioral therapy because it goes back to what's going on in your head. And again, I make a distinction between the realities of living, which Consist of, if you're not a robot, you're going to have emotions. And that's why I push back against a lot of what's going on in the psychological community right now, in the therapeutic community, to diagnose every emotion as being pathological. I talk about that with Dr. Alan Francis in episode 22 called, Is Anybody Normal Anymore? And in episode 33 and 34 with Dr. Leonard Sachs, the first one is called, I Just Want My Kids to Be Happy and Other Flawed Parenting Ideals. And 34, American Parenting, Why It's So Hard But Doesn't Have to Be. Dr. Sachs talks about our tendency now to diagnose children with psychiatric illnesses that are likely rooted more so in their family structure, 
and in the ways that parents are letting their kids down by abdicating their authority as parents, letting their children hang out on their phones for seven hours a day, letting the kids have so much time with their peers that they're not getting that healthy adult child nurturing. So many realities. Too much to get into right now, but please check these episodes out, especially if you're a parent or if you know parents or know anyone who works with kids. Dr. Sachs's perspective is grounded in research through and through, and it's one that is needed so very desperately, especially in times like these where we do see kids experiencing anxiety and depression, oftentimes because the structure in the home is lacking. And just think about it. You've got a kid who's 11 years old and has anxiety. And I say that in air quotes because I don't think he technically has anxiety. But if he's running the home, no one's giving him any sort of instruction or expectations. He's allowed to play on his video games and on his phone the entire day. Of course he has anxiety because he knows at some level that no one's in charge, that he's in charge. That's That would be anxiety provoking for any 11-year-old. This is the kind of stuff that Dr. Sachs gets into. So please check that out if you are a parent. And if you know parents or know people who work with kids, I would highly recommend those episodes because of the expertise that Dr. Sachs and Dr. Francis bring to the program. And I highlight those episodes even here talking about beliefs because it all comes back to our mindset. It all comes back to the thoughts that are going through our mind all day, every day, our inner monologue our inner belief system that then informs our thoughts and impacts our feelings. And the chart that I posted on Instagram is all rooted in cognitive therapy, which reminds us that our feelings are fueled, as I said, by our thoughts. Now, people will say things like, I just can't help what I feel. And cognitive therapy says, "Uh, yeah, you can. (laughs) You absolutely can, which is a good thing. It's an empowering thing. Because if I'm just run by my feelings and my feelings are going to come and go and I have absolutely no control over them, that is a very scary place to be. That's a place where if I feel great one day, I guess it's going to be a great day. And if I feel cruddy one day, then I guess it's going to be a cruddy day and I have absolutely no control of it. I don't care for that position. I don't like that. I resist feeling out of control as we spoke to earlier. We all do better when we feel we have some control And when it comes to our emotional state, we actually have a ton of control as cognitive therapy shows us. Here's how it works. When you have an emotion, unpack and examine what's beneath it. Because beneath the feeling is a thought that fuels the feeling. And beneath the thought is a meaning that we've ascribed to the thought. And beneath the meaning is a belief. And that belief is the foundation for the meaning and the thought and the feeling. And the powerful piece is we can change that belief if it does not serve us and if it's making us miserable. And in the post, I used an example of divorce and how our different beliefs about divorce would cause us to have a very different emotional response to divorce. So for example, if my belief is divorce is utterly awful, The meaning is I'm a failure. The thought is no one will want to date me because I'm a failure and divorce is so awful. And then the feeling is I'm miserable. Contrast that with a belief that divorce is a chance to reclaim my life, which then the meaning there is I'm free. The thought is I now have the chance to meet my person. And the feeling is I'm hopeful. And you can do this anytime you have an emotion. Examine the layers beneath that emotion, the thought, the meaning, the belief that's the underpinning of that emotion. If you change those, the emotion changes. It's simple, it's not easy, but it's something we can get better at as we practice it. Let's look at another example someone who's 40 and single and depressed. The feeling is depression. The thought is, I hate that I'm still single at 40. This was not the plan. I'm angry about it. Depression and anger often go hand in hand. Freud said that depression was anger turned inward. 
that thought fuels the feeling of depression, then there's a meaning behind the thought. And that could be anything. It could be something like people who are single for prolonged periods of their adulthood are damaged or people who are single for too long, quote, around two are losers or people who are single must be horrible at relationships. The meaning could be different for each person, but there is a meaning that is fueling that thought, which fuels the emotion. And the belief under it all would be something like happiness is only attainable through partnership. And again, do I have to ascribe to that belief? Do I have to maintain that belief? Is it possible that there's some flexibility there that I could say something like happiness is in my hands. I can be happy. I can choose happiness no matter what my relationship status. So let's now look at this same situation, a 40-year-old person who happens to be single with a different foundational belief in place. This person's belief is happiness is a choice that I make and it is unrelated to my relationship status. The meaning then is that people who are single for prolonged periods of their adulthood happen to be single. That's it. There's no meaning attached to it. They're single. They haven't met their person or they were with someone and it broke up or they were married and they're divorced now. It's just a reality of this current moment in their life. That's the meaning. Nothing more. The thought is, I'm single. I'm 40. Okay. The feeling is neutral. There's no reason to be jumping for joy. If you don't want to be single, there's no reason to jump for joy about it because you're looking for love and that's got its own set of emotions attached to it. But the utter depression wouldn't be experienced because the thoughts don't support it, the meaning doesn't support it, and the belief doesn't support it. Changing the belief from happiness is only attainable through partnership to happiness is possible always. It's in my hands. That shift, huge, enormous, life-changing. As I said, when I started working this process on my own life, it changed everything, which is why I'm so enthusiastic about it and want to share it with you all the time. One final example I'll share today that's very personal and it's from a time that was very dark and painful in my life. Those of you in my Love and Life family who subscribe to my newsletter, you may have listened to a bonus episode, which was part two of episode 89, How to Know When You've Met the One. I get that question a lot. So Dan joined me to talk about how we realized that we were each other's person and then we shared a little more in-depth personal stories in a bonus episode that went out to my Love and Life family. If you've missed that, please join my email list and I'll include a link to the private bonus episodes in the next newsletter. So for those of you who heard that, you know, and others of you may not know, that in the last years of his life, my father was diagnosed with vascular dementia, which is obviously hideous for the person suffering and everyone who loves him. Obviously, I was grieving. I felt everything. The sadness, the depression, the devastation, the pain. And even in definitely one of my life's darkest moments, I was able to use this process. And in this situation, it was more of a thought changing my feeling. I didn't try to tackle the belief about death being hideously painful and awful. We could tackle that. And if you have faith, death doesn't mean the end. For example, the belief is that death is a new beginning in heaven, that sort of thing. So there's still room to tackle the belief. And I do have faith. So there was comfort there as well, because I did believe that my dad was going to heaven and I would see him again. So there, is, there was comfort there, for sure. But for this particular feeling of pain and loss and the grief, I targeted the thought behind it because I knew that just shifting that thought, that alone was going to provide me with some relief. And I didn't know it, I guess, until I started practicing it. 
as I felt the overwhelming sadness and grief and pain, because I've worked this practice so often, even in this situation, I thought, okay, can I unpack this a little bit? Can I find a thought that can soothe me in this moment, can help ease this pain and lessen the intensity of this overwhelming sadness? And I did. I I thought, here's the adjustment that's going to make this feel a little better. When the loss and sadness and grief feels overwhelming, I'm going to say to myself, I am so blessed to have a dad to miss. So many people never had a dad or had a horrible dad or lost their dad when they were little. Yes, I'm devastated, of course. But what a gift to have had a dad who was so extraordinary and loving and devoted that I'm going to miss him so horribly. And that greatly eased the pain. I reworked the thought. Instead of this is horrible, I can't bear it, it's, it's intolerable, it's unfair, why does my dad have to get dementia, he's so brilliant. Instead of allowing my mind to fester and ruminate with those thoughts, I replaced those thoughts as quickly as possible with, I'm blessed. The grief I'm experiencing is actually a blessing. It truly is. And that made all the difference in my grieving process. Yes, it was still painful. Yes, I still cried. Yes, I was still devastated. Yes, I still miss my father to this day. But there's a level of gratitude in the midst of grief and recognizing that the grief is so enormous and painful because of the blessing of having a dad like him. Maybe you're not going through this exact scenario, but perhaps something similar. And I hope looking at the power of our beliefs and the meaning and the thoughts on our emotional state, I hope examining this can be helpful. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals and we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. And now for your questions. Question number one. I've been dating this guy for over a year now. We are in a serious relationship. We talk about a future together. I'm a single mom of two. They're 17 and 11. He's 10 years older than me and has been divorced for seven years. He's very independent and knows how to take care of himself. We are in love. He tells me he loves me when we're together. I can tell by how he looks at me, spoils me, makes me breakfast in bed. However, he is just not romantic. I am extremely lovable in person and by phone, and he's not. We live 25 minutes away from each other, and anytime I'm free, I go see him. He's perfectly okay with that. However, I'm the one that has to initiate it. If he knows it's my weekend with my kids, he doesn't make a point to come and see me during the week. He's been coming around my kids more and more, but again, I'm usually the one that has to plan it. He had some errands to run about 15 minutes from his house this week, and knowing it's my weekend with my kids, he didn't make an attempt to come my way. I've brought it up before, And he's definitely improved. So I try to focus on that, but it still bugs me. We get along great, have so many things in common. He is the leader in this relationship, and I kind of like that, but I just can't let go of the fact that he doesn't give me more. Am I overthinking this like I usually do? Or if he truly loved me, wouldn't he try harder? So the first thing that comes to mind regarding this situation is a love language situation. He makes you breakfast in bed. He tells you he loves you. So he's showing you. You can tell by the way he looks at you. So he's demonstrating love to you through acts of service and words of affirmation. And this love language theory is by Dr. Gary Chapman. I've talked about it in the podcast 
way back in episode five, so that might be helpful for you. But it sounds to me like you have mismatched love languages. And the theory goes that we give love the way that we like to receive love because our default mode is to assume that the way that I want to receive love is the way that everyone wants to receive love. Sounds to me he wants to tell you some words of affirmation. He wants to tell you he loves you. He wants to demonstrate that to you through acts of service like breakfast in bed. And he's not so interested in the quality time to the level that you are because you think, hey, you were only 15 minutes away from my house. Why didn't you swing by? Because I've got my kids so you know I can't come to you. Wouldn't it be great if you would give me a little bit of quality time, make a little effort to go out of your way to come and spend some time? So that's my first thought is that you have a love language. You want to receive love with quality time, and that may not be his love language. That's my first thought. The second thought is you didn't mention if he has kids, and he's 10 years older than you, and your kids are 17 and 11. He may not be a kid person. And as much as we love our children, other people don't love our children as much as we love our children. It's just normal. (laughs) So he may enjoy time with you when it's just you, but doesn't want to hang out with an 11-year-old and a 17-year-old. And that's something that maybe needs to be discussed very honestly, especially if you're going to move forward. And step families, blended families are very, they have their own unique set of challenges and they're absolutely surmountable. I'm a stepmother. I love my role, but that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges. There absolutely were. So I think that's a very important conversation for you guys to start having, especially because it's been a year and you say you're very serious. And then finally, you're dating. You're in a relationship, but you're still dating. And part of dating is recognizing, is this a fit? And it may be that he checks so many of your boxes of what you're looking for in your life partner. But if there's a deal breaker, like you don't make the effort to come see me, I need more of your time. That's what feels loving and secure and feels good to me in a relationship if he's not able to provide that because that's not his thing that's not how he's wired up then it may be that you're not a fit so I think a look at the love languages have a conversation about that as you read the book and listen to the episode you'll be able to be equipped to say this is what I think might be going on with us can we talk about this a little bit B, talk about the kids. Is this, he's just not a kid guy and he wants to see you as often as possible. But when you have your kids for a weekend or a week, he may not be around as much. And then C, you continue to do the wise, smart thing of examining who you are in this relationship, how you feel in this relationship, examining clearly who he is. Take off any rose-colored glasses that you have put on because you're in love with him and see him for the man that he is and be very wise about whether this man and this relationship is the right fit for you for a lifetime. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your perfecter. Question number two. Dear Dr. Karen, I don't usually ask questions like this. I usually follow inspiring accounts like yours and just read and keep my thoughts to myself, but I'm in a very hard place right now. So I wanted to give it a try, hoping that you might get this message and give me your advice as I need it so badly right now. I don't even know where to start And what question I need to ask exactly. I just feel lost and stuck. I'm afraid of being depressed too. And my anxiety is already giving me physical pain for which I already started cognitive behavioral therapy. Sidebar, that is great. Cognitive behavioral therapy is shown by research to be the most effective for depression and anxiety. So I'm glad to hear that you are in therapy. Back to the question. 
I'm ashamed of myself for being in the situation that I'm in, and it's only because of one guy. And what's even more painful is that I don't even know if it's my fault or whose fault it is. I'm so confused and hurt. Two years ago, I met a guy. He was a tourist in my country, and he was visiting with his friends. We met in a club, and I don't know why I accepted his invitation to spend the night with him. This is something I never, ever did before. I don't even know why I did it back then. Something told me it was right, even though now I have doubts about my gut. I had regrets, so I didn't answer his text the next day, but somehow we bumped into each other in the city after two days, and it was his last day in the country, and I was naive, and I accepted to spend another night with him. I thought that, well, he's going to leave, and this will just be a one-night stand thing. But it didn't happen. He was texting me a lot every day. We were talking a lot, and I easily started to fall for him. After a month or so, he admitted that he was in a relationship with someone. When initially he had told me he was single. Okay, another sidebar. When someone's traveling, hmm, that's often an opportunity to step out. And because the distance and he's with his friends and they're not going to say anything, obviously. So another thing for all of us to be aware of when we're traveling, people may pull off wedding rings and neglect to mention that they are actually, in fact, in a relationship. Back to the question. But he was actually in a 12-year-long relationship, and he was unhappy. He was cheating on his girlfriend every time he went to a different country with his friends. I should have taken this as a red flag, but I was already hooked. He was telling me how good it was to be with me, and he definitely wanted to see me again sometime. So we continued talking for three months. He broke up with his girlfriend, and we continued to have this relationship. We were seeing each other once per month, and he was coming to me in the beginning, and then I started also visiting him. I was very loving and passionate every time. But now I'm starting to think maybe it was infatuation. Anyway, after a while, he started to tell me to stop wearing makeup because natural is more beautiful to him and to wear more colorful clothes as I was wearing mostly black and to start exercising more as I'm too skinny and he likes girls with muscles. And I was afraid to lose him. So I started to do all that, even though I had no problem with who I was. I was content with myself and I didn't feel I should change that. So another sidebar, yes, you're absolutely right. There are so many red flags here. There's a lot more to this question, so I just want to interject with some thoughts throughout. Okay, he said he broke up with his girlfriend, but how do we even know that? That's my first concern. Someone who's with someone for 12 years oftentimes is never going to leave that person. 12 years, they're not married yet. It's just a girlfriend. They've been together probably since they were basically kids, and Typically, those situations, they stay together. They eventually get married. He cheats the entire time. It's a relationship that is just too comfortable to let go for either of them. But because they've never taken the chance to break up and find the person that's really a good fit for them, both of them probably will remain very unhappy and probably cheat throughout. So there's my two cents on that. The other piece I need to mention here is whenever someone starts telling you to change who you are, in a relationship, that is a huge red flag. You are you. You are allowed to be the wonderful person you are, whether you wear black and have makeup on or not, and whether you are skinny or have muscles. And for someone to tell you when you're dating, do this, do that, because that's what I like. (laughs) That's when we go, oh, that's what you like. Go find someone who is that because I'm me and I'm proud of myself and that's who I want to be. And I want to find someone who adores me for the person I am. Okay, back to the question. So I was content with myself. I didn't feel that I should change, but I tried because I thought he would like me more. But despite that, he didn't. I noticed how he always goes from his friends on trips without inviting me or considering me at all sometimes because I do understand that he needs his personal space. Okay, also, I'm going to break up. (laughs) I got to speak to this. He's going on trips because he's doing, when he's on trips with his friends, what he did with you when he was on a trip in your country with his friends. So he may have a woman that he sees in every country that he visits. And this is also leading me to a concern about your health, because if you're sexually active with him and he is having sex with multiple women in many countries, you could get a disease. This is a very, very risky, not only for your heart, but for your health. And as for the he needs his personal space, well, yes, in relationships, we absolutely have those times when we do our independent thing. My husband takes golf trips with his buddies. I go on girls trips with my girls. But we also consider each other. And there are times that we travel together. But this guy 
really loves the arrangement of he travels with his boys to different countries and you're never even considered to be a part of things, which you probably wouldn't want to go on a guy's trip anyway. But the fact that he never considers you and he insists on going on all these trips, again, speaks to the fact that he very probably has many girlfriends, in quotes, all over the globe. Back to the question. She says, I didn't feel like he wanted to make plans with me. I always had to accept the fact that it was already a sacrifice coming to me and spending three days per month. So if a man is making you feel like it's a sacrifice to come visit you when you're supposed to be his girlfriend, although I'm not even sure, I can't remember if you were ever given that label, that is not energy that you want in your life. You want someone who's excited to come. And if he only gets three days a month with you, he, is, he can't wait to spend those three days with you. And that's not the energy you're getting. You are a burden, essentially. Back to the question. We little by little started to see each other less on FaceTime and texting less because he was busy with work or doing other things, which I totally understand. But if you're in a relationship, you should consider your partner's needs too, right? I started to tell him that I would appreciate if he could make more time for me. But he said I'm crazy and pushy and codependent. This was basically our relationship for more than a year. Okay, I have to step in here as well. So someone who tells you that you're crazy and pushy and codependent, I'm not sure if he knows what that word actually means, but he is gaslighting you. He won't give you a proper amount of time or energy or attention and then wants to make you feel like you're needy and clingy and nuts. So my concern here is that I'm only halfway through your question and I'm already done and I want you to be done. There's nothing to salvage here. This is an emotionally abusive relationship. There's nothing more to say. You guys live in different countries. It should be pretty easy to cut this off. Block him. Stop texting him. Stop responding to his calls. He's cruel. He's, a, he's not a good person. Your relationship started with him cheating on a woman he was with for 12 years. That's not a solid foundation from which to build a relationship. It was flawed from the moment it happened. Leave it as you said earlier. It was a one-night stand. You had a fling. And please move on. Please. This is so unhealthy for you, as I said before, for your heart and your health. And really, it is halfway through the question, but it's just more of the same. It's her wanting to visit him. He got a new apartment and his friends came and they had a big party, but she wasn't invited to the party, nor was she invited to see the new apartment and he made up all these excuses. But of course, my concern is that he has a girlfriend. He could be living with someone in this new apartment. I'm going to fast forward a bit. She says, finally, a week ago, I couldn't take it anymore. And I guess we were on the same page because he said he wanted to be done with this. And I said, okay. And I blocked him. Yay. This is the best part of this whole letter is that you blocked him. She says, and now I have these obsessive thoughts. Maybe I was too pushy. Maybe I was crazy. Maybe I was asking for too much. Okay. If you ever Okay, this is me again, <laughs> stepping away from the letter. If you ever wonder if you're asking too much in a relationship, that is a huge red flag. The person you're supposed to be with, your person, is going to meet you. You will have the same goals for a relationship. Back to the question. She says, maybe I was asking for too much. He always said he would never be enough for me. But what I was asking was only to have him consider me in his plans because that's why you choose to be with someone, right? He says he loved me and I will regret my behavior one day because I was too pushy and asking for too much of him. He was saying that he was willing to give me the world and I didn't want it because I didn't believe in him anymore. But how? He didn't even want to at least try and be together on a daily basis. How can a person tell you they will give you the world, but when it comes to making a decision for us as a couple, it's not happening? So sidebar again, he was telling you everything that you needed to hear to keep you where he wanted you, which was accessible to him when he wanted to come and visit you for three days a month. He didn't want more. If he wanted more, you're absolutely right. His actions would have shown that he wanted more. He didn't want you at his place because if you saw his place, you might see his girlfriend there or who knows what was going on. He said exactly what he needed to say to get exactly what he needed to get. And you felt frustrated and unsure and uncomfortable and suspicious for every good reason. You were not crazy. You were reasonable to feel that much was off in this relationship. She says, I feel ashamed, empty, guilty, and confused. I don't know if it is my fault, if I ruined it. I don't know how to move on. We didn't say anything. I didn't have any closure. 
So here I need to ask you to listen to podcast episode 69, Closure, Why It's So Hard to Get and Give. And I share examples from my life when I wanted closure and when I was asked to give closure and both were difficult and both are in fact not necessary. There's this pop psych notion that if we get closure, it will help us move on. I don't believe it will. And it's really not substantiated by any research that I'm familiar with. So you don't need closure. You really don't. You take the power back by going, I don't need this closure. I have so much evidence that this is a not good guy and definitely not a good guy for me. That's all you need to know. So back to her question. She says, am I too desperate to find someone? I'm lost. I feel really lost. I don't enjoy anything anymore. I'm just sad and thinking if I could have done anything better. Because maybe if I did, it would have worked. This relationship left me with feeling not enough. And I struggled so much that now I'm literally having physical pain due to stress and anxiety. It's a lot more to say to this, but I've already said enough and the message is too long to read. I don't know if you will read my message, but I want to thank you for helping us with your great content. When I'm listening and reading you, it motivates me, but my negative feelings and thoughts are stronger and I can't seem to get over it. So all that I said throughout the question, I hope will be helpful. And also take a listen to my recent podcast about heartbreak. It's episode 97, Heartbreak is Hideous, Here's Help. And the physical pain you are feeling is normal. I hate to say that because I wish I could fix normal, but we can't fix normal. Research shows that our brain experiences heartache very similarly to the way we experience physical pain. So it makes sense that your heart is breaking and your body is responding and reacting to the grief as well. Again, I hope that what I shared throughout your question will be helpful. Please listen to that podcast episode. Please love yourself enough. You're, you're going to get therapy. That's great. You're doing the best thing for yourself. The obsessive thoughts, cognitive therapy will help you. We talk about taking charge of our thoughts throughout this episode and throughout this podcast always. They're going to be there. They're going to plague you and you're going to learn strategies through therapy for how to replace them with more empowering thoughts that will help you believe what you know is true. You deserve so much better than this and you will find it. But the first step to finding better is to let go of this bad scene with this bad dude. Do not spend any more of your precious time, your precious emotions, or your heart. Don't give him any more of your heart. You can do this. I hope that's helpful. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast, and I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page, and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May. Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. Okay, question number three is also kind of long, so I will interject throughout with some thoughts. Dear Dr. Karen, I've wanted to ask your advice for a while now about a situation with a man which I can't make my mind up about. I met a nice man last year, and by nice I mean he is handsome without being a stud or a pretty boy. And physically, he's what I look for in a man. He's tall and dark and has lovely, kind eyes. He's also nice in that he is thoughtful of me and interested in my life. Remembering details about my friends and family, he's patient too. He's younger than me. He is 27 and I'm 35, but I look young as I look after myself. 
We went on some dates last year in August and September. I was following TFG rules and he did well apart from in one area, the texting. And so when she talks about TFG, she's referring to the fairy godfather who has appeared on my program in episodes 49, 51, and 55. I partner with TFG. He provides the male vantage point to dating and helps us with the inside scoop to the male mind. And we collaborate at times where he likes to look at the research. And so he wants me to weigh in on things. So if you want to hear more from TFG, he is a great resource for anyone on the dating scene who wants to understand what's going on in guys' heads more. So back to the question. She says, he isn't much of a texter. For example, he came down to the coast where I live to take me out to dinner. And when he arrived at the restaurant, he didn't text me to say he was there. I thought he'd stood me up because I didn't hear from him. So 10 minutes pass and I'm waiting at the front of the restaurant and I decide I should call him just in case. He was in the restaurant sitting and waiting patiently the whole time. So by the time all this happens, I'm 20 minutes late and he has no attitude at all. He's just pleased to see me and calm. My long-term ex would have been furious. So I think that's a pretty easy fix because he doesn't have a lot of energy. He seems like a maybe a pretty laid back dude. I mean, he's in his late 20s. He's maybe just takes things as they come. But I think that's a real easy just, hey, when you get to the restaurant, text me. That way, I know you're there and I'm not waiting at the front of the restaurant and we can start our date on time. So I don't think that is a major issue. The next thing she says is another issue emerged in that he was concerned that he couldn't fulfill what I might want in a relationship. For example, if I wanted kids, he wouldn't be able to fulfill that for me. I hadn't thought about that and it kind of freaked me out. He wanted to further the relationship and take it into the physical stage and deepen the connection with me. We've been dating for a month, but he also didn't want to do that if it meant I was going to, it was going to prevent me from finding the right person who could be a husband to me and the father of my children. For example, he didn't want to block my Saturday nights in case I would have the chance to meet someone who could give me all those things if I wanted them. I didn't want to be intimate a month in, not because I wasn't attracted to him and didn't want to, but because on principle, I felt like it would be giving it up too easily. Sidebar, for more on why this is a very wise approach, check out my conversation with Dr. Duana Welch, author of Love Factually in episode 92. She will explain why that was very wise of you to not consider sleeping with him a month in with no commitment. Back to the question. I know he was attracted to me, liked me, and enjoyed my company, and he was not displaying the kind of self-interested behavior and actions of other men I've dated. He impressed me with his direct and thoughtful way that he articulated himself about an issue that could mean he might get rejected. It made me think that this is a good man and someone with whom I could have difficult grown-up conversations. He's not suave or a slick operator or a player, in my opinion. But I wasn't sure what I wanted in terms of husband and kids. And at that point, he backed off and didn't contact me for five days. I let it go and cut it off, chalking it up to the fact that he must have fundamentally wanted the physical element without a real commitment and had made it clear that he didn't want to be a husband or a dad. I felt like he was essentially asking for a free pass to have a more casual boyfriend-girlfriend relationship with me. I might add that after therapy, prior to having met this person, I identified that I am very commitment-phobic. I had a father who was absent from my birth as he worked offshore, meaning he worked weeks away and then home for weeks. He was a tumultuous influence in the home when he was home. He could also be verbally abusive, although rarely with me as I was his favorite trying to please me, which I avoided encouraging as it made it worse for my mom and sister. I select men who remind me of him. I had to learn to be very calm to not set him off on a high or low, and I struggled to trust men. I wonder if I didn't take a chance with this man who showed promise. I wouldn't reach out to him. I would expect him to pursue me every time, which he was doing till the end when he backed off. And I know I held back from letting him in, which he picked up on. Okay, another sidebar. Despite all that went on with your father in your home and how that may have an effect on your adult romantic relationships, 
you still did the right thing by letting him pursue you. And again, that goes back to Dr. Duana Welch's information from her book, Love Factually, and it's episode 92. So I encourage you to listen to that and it will help sort out a lot of what's going on here. Also, she's going to appear on the podcast again next season to talk about, you talked about commitment phobic, which could be an avoidant attachment style. And she's going to talk about attachment styles and dating and how when we understand our attachment style, it can really help clarify what's going on in relationships. Back to your question. I avoid intimacy and never take risks. Developing feelings for someone is frightening to me. I prefer to be in the position of power and subconsciously select men I know there is no long-term future with, such as younger men, or I fantasize about unattainable men. Sidebar, I think you have some clarity right there that you pick younger men because you're in control and they're not going to take it seriously anyway. So you avoid the possibility of being hurt because it's never going to materialize into anything serious anyway. She says, the real life conversation I had with this man prompted me to explore if I wanted children and to find out where I was in terms of my fertility. I look young and always assumed I could continue to act like I'm in my 20s, always deferring the subject of kids, as it also frightens me, just the thought of it. I found out my ovarian reserves are low. I should have them now or freeze my eggs. This was difficult to hear and a blow, as in the back of my mind I had imagined having them in the future, visualizing this as an idealized and remote way. I had to soul search and examine where this impulse came from and came to the conclusion that it is not my path to have children. So I reconnected with this man recently. We've been in touch sporadically over texts and phone calls. He still thinks about me. He'd wanted a more all-around connected experience, which included sex, but also the emotional closeness too and intimacy. He lacks confidence in himself and had spoken about his vulnerabilities around his appearance and worrying that he is not interesting enough. It's lockdown in the UK, so there's no chance to meet anytime soon. At the end of the day, I know no one can say how anything is going to turn out, and there is no way to be 100% safe in a relationship without opting out entirely. I think my question is, have I protected myself from a man who had openly admitted that there are limits to what he can be in my life? Or have I blocked intimacy and cut off the natural process of exploring another person to do the kind of discovery of possibility that you speak of? which is natural at the start of a relationship. So with this circumstance, I hear you being very introspective. You were seeing this man for just about a month. And during that time, a lot of stuff came up for you. Like, do I need to have the possibility of a husband and kids, a more traditional family structure, the possibility that that will happen in this relationship to stay in this relationship? And you examined yourself and found out your ovarian reserve is low and thought, maybe I don't need to have that. You also thought, okay, based on my therapy experience and what I learned, it's possible that I'm attracted to younger guys for these other reasons that go back to my childhood dynamics with my father and I need to be in control and all these things. And you explored that. And so you're very thoughtful and mindful about your approach. So my suggestion is if you don't need a husband and kids, he's saying he can't provide that for you. But if you don't need that, if you've decided that that doesn't need to be your path, then if you're still thinking about him and he's still thinking about you, there's no reason to not continue and see what happens. I mean, he's discussed his own insecurities, which that's interesting that he would share that so early. But again, maybe this is a younger guy and there could be a little bit of him being drawn to an older woman because he's got some mommy stuff going on. I mean, there's a lot that we couldn't possibly know yet. And these relationships, that's not that many years. And the older you get, that gap won't seem to be as much. It's certainly based on the development and the maturity of him and your own growth and development. So if you're interested in him, I say go right ahead. Continue to text and call. Like you said, you're on lockdown anyway. So this is an opportunity to continue to get to know him. And within another month, you may be madly in love with him. Or within another month, you may be completely uninterested. So it's just early days. But I think it's great that you took this opportunity with this relationship, which is what we should all do with any relationship. You took the opportunity to examine yourself, to understand yourself better, understand what you're looking for, have clarity in terms of 
your goals and dreams and desires for a partnership. And you did that. And uh, I wish you well. And now let's talk about the giveaway, the 100th episode of Love and Life Giveaway. Best part is everyone's a winner. Head over to my Instagram page. You'll see the post with all the details. The love and life hack for the 100th episode of Love and Life is take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. I know we talk about it every week, but really it weaves its way through everything from the Instagram posts that most resonate with my community to the answers to the questions you ask me. It's all about taking charge of our thoughts and the meaning behind them and the belief behind the meaning to take charge of our life. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast journey. A hundred episodes in, so many more to go. Head over to my website. Let me know if there are any topics you want us to cover on the podcast. If there's any books you're reading, you'd like me to invite the authors to the program. I love hearing from you and I love creating episodes that resonate with what's on your heart and on your mind. Also on the 100th episode, I want to say a big thank you to our talented producer, Tim May. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.